From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After three heart-stopping white-knuckle finishes in Omaha, the Gators are headed to the championship series for the fourth time in school history, seeking their second national title. On today's show, we'll round up FloridaGators.com's senior writer Scott Carter and the voice of the Gators' Sean Kelly in Omaha for a roundtable chat about Kevin O'Sullivan's cardiac Gators, what lies ahead in the finals, a momentum-swinging week on the recruiting trail for Billy Napier, and NCAA tournament quirks in the PAT. Then, we'll catch up with a Gator great from the other diamond, UF Hall of Fame softball star-turned-human rights activist, Stacy Nelson. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is an Omaha-focused roundtable with the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and FloridaGators.com senior writer, Scott Carter, both on the ground in Nebraska and ready to talk about a, a wild week for the Gators. And guys, as we're talking right now, Florida is into the championship series on the strength of three one-run nail-biters, all of which were a pitch from going a different direction. Um, talk about how Florida got here and, and the way that they managed to do it. Well, Adam, you, you hit it on the head, man. In a uh, series of one-run games, I can tell you. I mean, uh, Sean's can attest to this, too. I mean, they've been nerve-wracking, especially for Gator fans. They've been great baseball games. And amazingly, as close uh, as they have been, uh, the Gators have come out on top each time, you know, starting with the uh, game one against Virginia with that dramatic uh, ninth inning tying homer, you know, by Wyatt Langford. And then, of course, the uh, the sacrifice fly by Luke Heyman. And now they're in a championship series again. Uh, you know, they they it was a tight game throughout. And, and who you know, we've seen the home run 456 feet from uh, Wyatt Langford, longest home run in College World Series since they've been playing it at this park. Well, guess what? They can also do it with a bouncing ball to shortstop. <laughs> we saw that uh, in game three with the infield hit, Kate Curlin, and then, of course, the Michael Robertson catch to win the game. I just think it's a team right now, guys, and we've all seen teams like this. It's just all the pieces are starting to – they just they are fitting exactly where they need to fit right now. And obviously, Kevin O'Sullivan and the rest of the Gator fans hope that continues here in Omaha. Yeah, Scott, it's, it's eight straight wins now for the Gators, including the three here. And I think the one constant, strangely enough, uh, is pitching. And the pitching has been dynamite. Even Caglione here on semifinal Wednesday was um, either throwing strikes or hitting the bull, um, throwing it back to the backstop at times. But he leaves the game, he's only allowed one run. And and then the bullpen takes over. And as they've been here for so long now, been ultra-reliable. So when, when you have that as your anchor, that pitching staff right now, um, it allows you 
to do just enough to win a run one run game, you know, and maybe it's the long ball dramatically late, or as Scott said, the, the bouncing ball at the hole it's short, um, or the defensive play to gun down a runner at the plate on another team's bad decision, or even Michael Robertson flying into the wall to end game three. I, it's just, I, I don't want to call it a team of destiny, but this just speaks to the depth of this ball club and how really how well-rounded they are. Um, because yes, the, the home run has played a factor. They have six home runs, here in Omaha, and the record at this ballpark in any College World Series is eight. It's done by three teams, most recently by Ole Miss last year. I just have a feeling they're going to tie or break that if they go on and win a national championship. So, um, and and then you know because the wind has been blowing in more days than not here, they've had to find a way to to win without bombing it over the fence four times a night. So, all those things play into it. But Scott, you'll attest to this. There's almost a a different star every time out. It's Cade Curlin getting the, the the game-winning RBI on Wednesday for a guy that was, I think, two for his last 21. Um, it's Ty Evans coming back from nowhere to have a double and a pair of home runs here at Omaha. It's, you know, Josh Rivera getting it going today with a home run, his second of the series. They just go up and down the lineup. It's not one guy all the time. And it'd be easy for a team to lean on a Wyatt Langford or a Jack Caglione and, and yes, all those guys have had a hand in this thing, but it's multiple, multiple guys that have contributed to what now is a chance to win it all. In terms of the formula, it, it's hard to say because, again, as you noted, it's been a, a bunch of different ways. But even going to the Oral Roberts game and having the, the situation, uh, losing track of the, the mound visits and you know, as crazy as that is, and you have a freshman coming into a bases loaded situation, the game on the line. I mean, they found so many different ways to win. To what degree do you guys think there is that that quiet confidence of a, I don't know if Team of Destiny is right, like you said, Sean, but just the idea that, hey, we're going to find a way, even if at this moment we don't quite know how? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, teams that end up at this stage of the season, guys, and, you know, we see it in all sports. We, you know, we don't want to use that term team of destiny. I agree with you guys. It feels a lot like that. And that confidence grows, Adam. I mean, you just you just see it. You know, you win these close games. It can only help boost your confidence. I mean, take this uh, this latest win against uh, TCU to advance to the championship round. I mean, you know, they they scored three runs and they and they win the game. And you know, they bring in Michael Robertson to pinch run. Uh, after a, a Tyler Shellnut double, and then they get two outs, the next two batters, a popped-up bunt, and then uh, Robertson moves to third uh, on a fly ball that Kobe Halter hit that almost went out of the ballpark. And you're wondering, okay, I mean, maybe not their day today. Maybe, you know, if they can't get a guy home from second. And then, again, a bouncing ball to the short start by Kate Curlin, who, uh, who has really been slumping uh, in the postseason of late. That's just what teams do when they win titles. I mean, that's all I can say, you know. And they haven't won a title yet, obviously, but they just have that confident aura about them right now that I don't think anything is too big for them or overwhelms them uh, where they are right now mentally and the way they're playing. I mean, if it's pitching one night's great, the defense one night makes the play, you just never know where it's going to come from, guys. It's strange. And And whether they should or shouldn't, this team never feels like they're finished. It's amazing. And we've seen that with, what, 21 comeback wins all season long. So 
it's not like this is just all of a sudden appeared. This is the way they've played basically all year. And, you know, to Scott's point about potential championship teams, there's something different about them. And this group plays for each other and has confidence in the next guy more than a lot of teams that I've been around, maybe, maybe most. Um, and so <clears throat> that's why, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan's had this ability to know that he can make a defensive replacement late in a game or a, uh, a pinch hit situation. And that, that dude's ready. I mean, because they don't want to let each other down and they believe in each other and all those things come into play and it, and it only gets harder. I mean, that's the one thing that's been sometimes overlooked at, at this point in the year. It's the college world series. Everybody's good. And it's going to be a one run game. It might be one moment, one pitch, one at bat that determines your fate. And so far, they've won each of those situations to get to this point. When you get to this stage, it's all about pitching and it's all about managing your games. So the, the most important reason to stay in the winner's bracket and stay unbeaten is you stay on track with your pitching. So as we discuss the championship series, best of three beginning on Saturday, um, how do we expect the rotation look? Is it just a normal, essentially, weekend rotation for Florida where everybody is available just as you would want them to be? Yeah, I mean, that's where the uh, Sully on his post-game radio show, uh, that's why he said, you know, that they're they're in great shape with where they are in pitching, you know, with Brandon Sprout and Hurston Waldrop lining up for games one and two of the championship series. And obviously, if you need a game three, I mean, Jack Hagley on pitch today, but it wouldn't be until Monday. So, I mean, that would give him, what, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four full days rest. And he, he could be flexible there if he needed to go somewhere else, but – I just think uh, it's exactly why when you talk about Omaha and the College World Series, guys, the predominant storyline is almost always how important it is to win that first game. And if you can do it, win the second one, because it truly does make a difference on just the way the wear and tear that is inflicted on your team throughout the series. And the the Gators have certainly uh, managed that part of this trip very well so far. So while Florida cruised through their bracket unblemished, uh, Wake Forest and LSU are going the distance. They're playing a winner-take-all game on Thursday night to determine who makes it to the finals. So what I want to do here, we don't know who's going to win that game because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, want to, I want each of you to give me, give me the side. So give me the matchup. If Florida plays Wake Forest, what does that look like? And then if Florida plays LSU, how does that shape up? Do you guys get to play the, the hypotheticals here for what those matchups could look like? Well, in theory, Adam, if, if the Gators and Wake Forest lock up, you've got seeds one and two, which, you know, is chalk. And it, and look, uh, the number one seed has not won the national championship since 1999. But this is the Wake Forest team that's unlike a lot of one seeds we've seen in a long time. They are a complete ball club. Just when you think their pitching might be exhausted, oh, they've got more. I mean, they're really that good. And they can hit for power. They can play small ball. They defend really well. Going into the tournament, I thought there's no one that I've seen in person better than Florida. But in studying Wake Forest, I kind of believe that there may not be a more complete team than Wake Forest. So it will be, it, it will be a truly it will truly be a heavyweight bout, Wake Forest and Florida in the championship series. And uh, look, you think it's been a razor's edge now? Oh that series would be a razor's edge and probably have to go all three games to be decided. And, uh, you know, the thing about the LSU-Florida series, I mean, this is 
what we saw in 2017 when the Gators won their only World, uh, College World Series. It's obviously uh, going to have a very SEC feel to it. These are two of the uh, the powerhouses from the Southeastern Conference, and uh, they did not play uh, this season, which is you know kind of a rarity. Uh, so it'll be their first time head to head. But the thing that's going to stick out in my mind most, I think, just in terms of the series, we're looking at three of the probably the top three picks in the upcoming major league draft. And, you know, Wyatt Linkford from the Gators and obviously Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens from LSU. So, I mean, from a talent level, obviously both teams have high-end talent. There's going to be that natural rivalry there. I think the one thing uh, that Florida fans discovered in 2017, I mean, it, it's a very pro-heavy town when LSU is in the College World Series finals. So, that's something that the Gators uh, managed well in the past, and now it's a new team. Obviously, the players who are here now weren't around then, but I'm sure Kevin O'Sullivan will share some of his wisdom uh, with them on that part of it. But uh, I think it's just going to be it's going to be like a classic three game SEC weekend series for the national title. The one advantage that the Gators have, LSU will have expended a lot of pitching capital to get to that championship series. That will have some effect. This is an LSU team that, as good as they are at the top of their rotation, they have struggled uh, near the bottom of their rotation and at times with the exception of Riley Cooper uh, in the bullpen too. But look, to Scott's point, the three Golden Spikes finalists playing in the same championship series, pretty awesome too. So much of the focus right now is on Omaha, and rightly so, uh, but especially for recruiting fans, I am not a recruiting fan. I know you're not either, Scott. And we're limited in how much we can say about recruiting matters, especially for unsigned players. However, it caused shockwaves throughout college football the weekend that Billy Napier had on the recruiting trail when it came to some verbal commits. It started with a pretty high-profile loss that was then followed by an insane series of wins. Uh, And again... We've seen these things happen before. Nothing is official until guys sign on the dotted line and then get on campus. But as far as the narrative goes, and we know so much of this these days is about narrative. Florida, I think for the first time under Billy Napier, has a really strong narrative when it comes to the recruiting trail, which we know is so key to building this program back to where it wants to be. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was a a really a big turn of events. uh... Last weekend, and I, like I told someone else I uh, talked to about this, I mean, I think, you know, we've heard Billy Napier talk a lot about, you know, how important it is, the relationship piece of it, and being very specific in his targets on the recruiting trail. And I just thought it started to really come together, maybe like he envisioned when he took the job. Um, and, you know, I think if this thing goes the way that I kind of think it will, if, if you know, if fans give him enough time and that, you know, he gets the right pieces, I think we'll be looking back at this weekend in June of 2023 if they're playing in the national championship in two or three years. I think a lot of – I think this weekend, this past weekend, will be a, a one that will be circled on the calendar for a lot of people because, you know, there's so much – unknowns in recruiting we know that none of these players are guaranteed to be superstars we we know that none of them are even guaranteed at this point to play because they're commits right now they're not signees 
But I just believe that when you get that many people buying into what you're what you're trying to do, there's something more there than just one commit or two. I mean, it was a wave of people, and I I think we're going to look back on this, and it's going to be an important moment. And it is a it was a a change in the narrative, you know, around the program. And I mean, they've got a lot of work to do. You still got to get them on campus and develop them. And but you know, you're looking at the way this 2024 class is shaping up. And right now, you gotta you gotta really like what they're what they're doing. Moving on to our PAT, it's Omaha inspired because I, like I'm sure you guys have as well, I've heard from so many people who are frustrated with the way that they determine the home team and the away team, not just in Omaha, but in the, the NCAA tournament entirely. And I've explained it to people many times because had this for years and years doing softball too, but this weird rule where the team that has been the visitor in more games gets to be the home team even if they're an unseeded team versus one that's number two in the country and did a lot of work to earn that. So I'm curious, to me, that's one of the most mind-numbing NCAA minutia rules that comes into play uh, in a postseason. It's it's very, it, there's recency bias there, but I'm curious if there's anything else for you guys uh, that rises to that level of annoyance and nonsensicalness, which may or may not be a word. I'll figure it out while you guys are answering. Adam, I, I truly can't think of anything more nonsensical in the sports that I've covered. Um, I, I have a split decision here. Uh, being here in Omaha, I think that if, if a team gets to Omaha, then I think we, we start over in some respect. And I'm okay with the, the system where you determine or try to be fair about how many times a team is home or away. But remember, in baseball, it's truly unique because of the advantage of being the home team and getting to bat last. I do believe, though, when you have earned the right to host a regional or super regional, that should allow you to be the home team in your own ballpark at any point uh, through that process. And yes, that rewards you for being the higher seed. It rewards you for being a host team. Um, so I, in a sense, I would, I would be thrilled if we got rid of the alternate stuff in the regionals and the super regionals, and then come time for the college world series, if they want to stick with this current format, I would probably take that as a compromise, but Look, baseball is unique, and again, about batting last, the advantage of the home team. But then again, I, I can't think of any other sport where they've got it this messed up. Well, Adam, I mean, obviously you bring up the NCAA rule that probably I dislike the most as well. I think it's a pure absurdity on most levels. But I'm used to that with the NCAA. I mean, they have some rules that you just kind of roll your eyes at. And certainly the I've always thought, like Sean said, the – the fact that the team that's hosting a regional or super regional because of their regular season success and they're still not home team at times at home, that's just it's ludicrous to me. And yeah, I just think it's it's unfair to be honest with you. So the way the setup is in Omaha, I mean, I don't like it really any better either. I know they have to deal. I just think it should all go back to seating. I mean, your regular season success should determine whether you're the home or away team in postseason play. So if you're playing, if you're the number one seed and you're in Omaha, you should be home team every game unless you lose. And then number two should be, you know, it goes down the list. So that's just my thought on it. I mean, I think it's the worst rule that I, I know in sports right now. The other one that's kind of getting at me a little bit lately, it came up this week in the Rangers game, this whole thing in Major League Baseball with the, the running lane to home play and the yeah. catcher. 
I mean, come on, man. I mean, that that play, that was one of the worst calls I've ever seen. It was bad. If I was Bruce Bochy, I may have brought a bat out there, you know, <laughs> just go ahead and start. I don't, I don't know if – I'm not sure Bruce can wield a bat at this, but he, he was – I think he got out there as quickly as he could, but he's getting up there in years. <laughs> yeah, he's not moving around like he used no. to. But, but still, yeah, I mean, he had a perfect gripe there. That's just one of those rules. I hope that Major League Baseball – kind of reassesses that i understand where it came from back in when buster posey got hurt at the plate when he was you know young in his career but it's always been part of the game and it's like the nfl you know trying to do some things with tackling i mean it's gonna be a violent game as long as it's tackle football Mm -hmm. Uh, so i think baseball is having its own little issue right now with you know trying to prevent really collisions at the plate yeah, there's no shortage of, uh, of dumb rules we could debate here all day, but certainly the one that is most clear and present is the NCAA home and away one, uh, which I know is frustrating Gator fans now. And again, we'll see how it shakes out. In the championship series, it's very clear cut. The higher seed is the home team for game one, the lower is the home team for game two, and the higher is the home for game three if necessary. So not there, there's not going to be any surprises at this point like there are during the, uh, the bracket play portion. Yeah, it's just a very uh, simple model that, you know, my 6th and 7th grader get totally, but I don't know why Dean Stoboy doesn't get it. Yeah, they, they've made one improvement to the rule because up until a few years ago, in a super regional, game three was a coin flip. Now, if you're the higher seed and you're hosting, you're automatically the home team for the if necessary game. But up until a few years ago, it was a coin flip. You could be on your own field as the higher seed and be the visitor in two of the three games in the Super Regional. So it's scary to say this rule was actually worse, um, but it has gotten better, albeit it's still quite bad. Progress can be slow, Adam. Sometimes as slow as a bad internet connection, you know, that's just the, <laughs> the way life is. But a, a slow internet connection is not going to deter the coverage coming your way from Omaha. Uh, Scott is going to be there churning stuff out all the way through the bitter end, which could be Monday late night uh, if this thing goes all the way to three games. So make sure to stay locked into FloridaGators.com for all of his content. Check out Sean's call on the radio. Uh, And guys, next week, hopefully we're talking about a national championship. Hope so, Adam. I mean, it's always fun to be out in Omaha. And, you know, this team, I I think, has got – it's got a little bit, as you say, as we like to say in sports, it's got a little bit of mojo working right now. So we'll see if they can carry it into the championship series. But uh, thanks for having us and look forward to talking to you about what happens out here. More so than any other program, the Gators have been mainstays at both the men's and women's College World Series over the last 15 years, with 2021 marking the only year neither team made an appearance on the final stage. That remarkable run started in 2008, when softball made it to Oklahoma City for the first time, largely thanks to the arm of Stacey Nelson. In the time since her playing days, Nelson has taken some incredibly unique turns, Trading in her cleats for law books and pursuing an ambitious path to fight for human rights both here and abroad. We spoke to the UF Hall of Famer recently and asked her to take us through her sprawling and fascinating story from the beginning. I was born in Long Beach, California. Uh, To get me into a better school district, my mom moved me when I was 10 years old 
to Orange County and I played for Los Alamitos High School ultimately. And that got me the athletic background to get to the University of Florida, which I'm so thankful for. I think that was the luckiest I've ever been in my life to get to UF. So when did you start? Why did you start playing softball? Like what was the what was the spark to get into the sport? My father told me early on. First, it was when I was seven and a half years old. He had a friend, his own childhood friend that was starting a softball team. And the friend needed an assistant coach. And my dad filled in. And so my dad told me, you're playing softball this year. And I was elated because all of my friends at elementary school were playing softball. So that's how I entered in. And then honestly, when it got time for high school, I wanted to quit. Hmm. But he said, you're going to have to do something extracurricular. (laughs) And I thought, well, I'm already you know, playing softball. I don't want to learn something totally new. So I kept playing softball. Hmm. And that is not a very romantic story of how I began. <laughs> That's it. So there, there is a, there's a pivot point, right? Where it's in addition to being something you're just doing, there's the commitment to, I'm going to make this a big part of my future. And obviously going to college for that, going across the country, that is, that's a pretty big commitment. So when did you decide that softball was going to be your avenue to get to all of the places you are now that we'll, we'll hear about in, in just a few minutes. Well, luckily, when it was time to play softball throughout my youth, it was time to play and it was time to do whatever the coach said. And that's it. Um, and I played on great teams with great coaches. So I learned a lot of skills and I eventually was being recruited by different colleges. And the reason I chose the University of Florida was because they had a good football team. <laughs> That's why a lot of people choose the University of Florida. Yeah, I was attracted with the school colors, the football team, and the softball team was warm and welcoming on my recruiting trip, so I chose Florida. Hmm. So okay, so it wasn't it, it wasn't a grand vision that that Coach Walton sold you. It was kind of some other things, and the, the softball is good too, basically. Well. The funny thing is, I was recruited by Karen Johns. Oh wow! Before oh, that's right. Okay. So during my senior year that summer, Coach Johns had been fired. So Coach Walton came to meet me in New Jersey where I was playing a tournament with a California team. Hmm. And he said, Stacy, I've tried calling you for the last month and a half, but your voice mailbox is full, which was very (laughs) of me at that age. Yeah. And my first question to him when he said, I'm your new coach was... Coach, can we have lazy boys in the locker room? This just shows how little of a grasp I had on one <laughs> athletics. And I saw all the fancy things at Florida and I guess wanted a lazy boy. But when I got to school, I learned what hard work was. I learned what playing for something bigger than you was. So my education from softball and then my formal, you know, actual education at the University of Florida really laid the foundation for the rest of my life. So one of the reasons that I I wanted to talk to you was just the timing of it. People love milestones, right? And it's been 15 years since that first trip to the College World Series for the program, which you obviously led. Um, What are are your memories of that time? Because I know that that was such a huge focus was getting somewhere the 
the program had never been. And then to do that and for back-to-back years to be on that big stage so close to wing it all multiple times. Um, what, when you reflect back on that, what stands out about it? Coach Walton is an incredible leader, an incredible coach, and he had a vision mm-hmm. that I was lucky to be part of. That's what stands out the most. And Coach Rocha was there when I was there, and she really helped me with pitching skills. She taught me an entirely new pitch that I had not known before college or had not been able to grasp. So really, I think Coach Walton was the difference maker, and Coach Rocha made a difference for me as a pitcher. And then the girls that I was with, um, there was a little bit of a culture change in the team when Walton came in and being on that wave and accepting the culture that he wanted to create made all the difference. But at the end of the day, my teammates were the support system that I had through that culture change. And I still love those teammates to this day. We're still friends. Well, and that's one of the things whenever you do a, a where are they now type interview, everyone wants to know, oh, well, which of those teammates do they still see the most? Who do they get to talk to frequently? Um, wh- which ones are you most in touch with today? Because obviously all of you um, have gone I and mean, it's been it's been quite some time, right? You're doing different things. You're in different parts of the country, the world to some extent. Um, but wh- which of those bonds have uh, have been most lasting? So I still have my very core group of girls and Allie Gardner. We talk on the phone a lot. We've traveled the world together after college. Allie Gardner. Then Mary Ratliff. I was lucky enough to be the maid of honor in her wedding. Hmm. Christina Hilberth. Um, got to go to her wedding in St. John's and got to, you know, so many of these teammates now have babies. So mm-hmm. get to see all of their kids grow up and fly across the country to see them and vice versa and then brooke johnson is such a solid friend solid teammate and francesca anaya and i love watching her she was recently commenting on a regional mm-hmm. and then kim walzonia who's here in southern california with her three crazy children which wow. really speak to the karma because she was <laughs> such a fire and now her three kids are three fireballs that she deals with. <laughs> That's so time. funny. When and you mentioned, you know, watching some of the regionals and hearing Francesca on there, for someone, I, I keep teasing this, we're going to talk about all of the things that you do that have nothing to do with softball. Um, but because of that, I'm curious, how much have you stayed engaged with the sport, um, whether it's just watching the sport in general or even keeping tabs on, on what the Gators are doing? So I always keep tabs on the Gators. Uh, obviously, I don't know as much as I did when I was actually there playing, mm-hmm. but absolutely keep tabs on the team, check in with Coach Walton and his wife, Sam, often. And when I come back to visit, Brittany Suliard is another name. I'm so happy that the same people are around the team, Tony Meacham, the academic advisor. So it's wonderful to stay engaged. I wish I could engage more, but living across the country is a little difficult. Mm-hmm. But still watch as many games as I can. And my family is still watching Game Tracker when they need to. Really? Oh, yes. Wow. So that's long-term commitment. Once it gets in you, it doesn't go out. 
So after you graduated, you went to play pro, not for a long time, but you did play pro. And of course, you didn't just go play pro anywhere. You went and played in Japan. Um, as someone who has become a connoisseur of, uh, of worldwide experiences, what was that like as coming right out of college? Was that a, a culture shock? I mean, I'm sure you loved it. Um, but at the time, was, was it intimidating? Was it scary? At the time, I actually said no to Japan because I wanted to go to law school. That was a stubborn goal that I had, and I wasn't appreciating how fun and eye-opening it would be to play softball in Japan and other countries because I went on to play for Italy and Australia as well. So I at first said no to Japan, but hmm. then I had a, a boyfriend at the time and his mom woke me up and said, you're very stupid for saying no. <laughs> so that really shook me. And then I said, okay, I'm open to playing for you all still. And they actually came back with a higher offer, which was good for everybody. Yeah. And playing in Japan was a little bit scary, but Japan is Japan. It's this one of the safest countries in the world. So it was more about the culture shock the mm -hmm. culture shock of playing softball in Japan. And I'm specifically talking to playing softball in Japan, not just living in Japan, but playing softball in Japan was so is so much different than the, the United States. And then going on from there, like in Italy, there were girls that were smoking cigarettes in the dugout in Italy. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's obviously different than America. And then playing in Australia, Really, I think they were all worried about the shrimp that was going on the Barbie after the game. <laughs> <laughs> but then I got to coach the Ugandan national softball team, which is another cultural experience. So I'm so happy that my boyfriend's mom at the time kind of shook me by the shoulders and told me that I was making a bad mistake because I followed her advice and got so many great experiences out of it, cultural experiences, mm -hmm. as well as experiences. Mm. You know, there's so many people who reach a level of success in the sport. They want to do it as long as they possibly can. I mean, Monica Abbott is still playing softball, which is incredible because she's uh, she, she's doing even longer than, than you were. Um, but you, you seem to turn the page pretty quickly in terms of getting to that next phase of your life, fulfilling your dream of going to law school and, and where that would take you. So what was it that, that made you comfortable with moving on so quickly to those other passions? First thing I think of, I'm convinced Monica Abbott is a robot. <laughs> She's just so good. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was the education that I received at the University of Florida. I loved going to class. It was not a chore to me. I majored in philosophy. I loved my major. As I got more involved with philosophy classes, I actually used to joke with my friends, like, I have to go to church, meaning class, because it was so thought-provoking. So I had always wanted a law degree since I was a small child because of my mom working with lawyers, describing things about them. And so I had the law degree on my mind the whole time since before I got to the University of Florida. And... Like I said, I'm very happy that I took the little detour with professional softball, but I always had a law degree on my mind. Did you always know what you were going to do with it? Or was that part of the discovery after you reached that point 
you then saw what avenues were open to you? Or did you have the vision of using it for essentially for philanthropic causes beyond that? I think this is where I have to pause to mention a professor at the University of Florida, Stephen Knoll. And Stephen Knoll, he was a fan of the softball team. He had a few of the softball players in his class. So he kept talking to me and he eventually talked me into taking one of his more high level classes. And from there, after that class, he told me to do an independent study with him. I went through a list of possible topics and he explained that all of those are crap. But (laughs) the final topic was studying the history of the use of children as soldiers. So I dove right in, did an entire semester researching children in conflict and children being used as soldiers. And that's what eventually brought me to Uganda. That has really defined my path since college. And I wanted to law school to do something related to that, but I also switched gears. So, yeah. So how did you, how did you get onto that path? Why, why Uganda and, and how were you able to act on it? Because I think that's what, what I found interesting, just looking at everything that you've done was, I mean, we've never, we've never interviewed a former athlete before who has this kind of path. So how did you, how did you know where to go, what to do, et cetera? I did not know what to do at all. Um, It was after my sophomore year, I was home in California watching TV before I needed to go to a pitching lesson because during the summers, I would still visit my childhood pitching instructor for lessons. There was a day where I was watching a documentary on child soldiers. It was the first exposure that I had to the issue. And I remember my dad, he still came to pick me up for lessons. I could drive but he still liked to pick me up, take me, sit on the bucket, catch the pitches. So that day I was like, dad, I, I can't go to pitching lessons. I have learned about this and I need to finish learning about this. And after a little argument between us, I went to pitching lessons, but then I kept researching the subject and it took on a new life because I was so outraged at how children could be used as soldiers in conflict. And at that time, the war in northern Uganda, where children were being used as soldiers, was still going on. Luckily, the war ended 2009, 2010, arguably, but it had been on my radar. So after going to Japan, I researched a study abroad program in Uganda, asked special permission to joined the study abroad program as a graduate of undergrad, and they allowed me to do so. So I took my Japan money and went to Uganda. Wow. And what was that? I mean, in terms of coming from Southern California, I just I imagine it's incredibly different. What kind of commitment did you have to be there? How long were you there? So the study abroad was four months. Wow. Um, it was... After I got done playing in Japan, I had to deliver the news to my teammates and my coach there that I wanted to go back to law school, which started in August. So I had a few months to kill and I organized this study abroad. And going to Uganda is so much different than anything in the United States. It's not easy to compare. Yeah. I can say that I love Uganda and I really like being there because people are happy 
it's chaos. It's a very poor country, but people are very happy there, very welcoming and very hospitable. So from that study abroad, what's the next step in your work? Because ultimately you go on to to start your own nonprofit, but what led to that? What was the, was it like you do the study abroad and then you make a longer commitment, you go back there for, you know, for a longer stretch and was it, was it kind of a buildup like that? How did it progress? Good question. And I'm sorry, because it is probably difficult to understand <laughs> what I, I did and when I did it. But I picked this study abroad because I would be able to travel alone to Africa and have someone accountable for me. And they also allowed you to do two months of a independent practicum where you could travel on your own, study what you wanted on your own, and create a final research paper on your own. So during that time, I lived in the capital city for the first few months of the program, but then the second, sorry, the last two months, I was up north where child soldiers were being used just one year ago. Hmm. Sorry, I should then explain that I was working for a school, doing an internship with a school that trained former child soldiers in vocational skills. So some were learning baking, like they were learning how to be bakers. Some were learning how to be barbers. Some were learning how to be mechanics. But what I saw in studying for those two months is they can learn all these skills, but there's still no jobs. So that was what I identified as the gap I wanted to fill. And how did you go about doing that? I'm, I'm thinking about people that start nonprofits here in the States. I mean, how did you, how did you go about starting your own organization and, and, and what form it would take? It started really small and grew and grew and grew. So the first project that I did while I was there on the ground in 2011 was I helped a bunch of mothers, you know, former child soldiers that were mothers, start a chicken farm so that they could you know, have chickens that have eggs and they could sell them in town. Very simple, mm -hmm. but it was a way for them to make money. And then seeing who was graduating from this school of former child soldiers, there were a lot of bakers. So I thought, let's bake bread and distribute it around the community. So that is what started the first version of the organization, Bake for Peace. And I partnered with this school then over, I started that in 20, it was actually December 29th of 2015. I had a conversation with the school director saying, let's build a bakery. Then over the course of the next three years, we were raising money. We raised only $40,000, which might seem like a ton. It's not a lot when you have a bread factory to build. Hmm. This was all raised, but then I started to get suspicions when I was back raising money, coordinating, doing things. And at that time, I had my law degree, so I knew how to write legal documents. So I was trying to legally organize with this school, and they were getting very timid making things legal. And that tipped me off that things are a little shady. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to partner with them, and I was fortunate enough to meet someone in Los Angeles from the exact village. Wow. Yes. Huh, what are the chances of that? Right? So he started giving me language lessons, and then he had to leave back to Uganda because he was trying to seek refugee status and was not getting it, so he had to return. And 
the last night that he was there said, kind of like the professor from earlier, your idea is crap. (laughs) He said, like, this is what my village needs. So a month later, I quit my job in Los Angeles. Which was which was what at the time? I was working for the Office of Inspector General as a jail monitor. I was very into policing issues. Hmm. So quit that job and I loved that job. I actually returned to that same job, which is a whole nother story. But Ronald was his name. Ronald said, your idea is crap. So when I went back to meet him that same year in August, I partnered with him and we started teaching people how to grow vegetables, which was easy for us to fund the people that we successfully trained and we call them beneficiaries of our organization they started turning their profit from 500 into 5000 a big increase um but we were very successful sadly the pandemic hit and kind of ruined us so then what what comes next after the pandemic interferes Obviously, you haven't lost your passion for it. So how did you, what was the next pivot after that? Sadly, we had to shut down the organization because Uganda charges extraordinary fees just to be an organization, yet we couldn't operate with the rules of Hmm. the pandemic. They said you cannot meet. So how can you have an organization when you can't meet? Mm -hmm. So we needed to close things down, which we did. And I'm still trying, actually, on this trip, I'm going next week to Uganda. I'm trying to light the fire again just to Mm. help this village because they're in the north, very affected, very poor. And just to give you an example of how poor, they actually have a census in northern Uganda. And through this census, only 40% of the people in this district eat three meals a day. Wow. The other 35% get to have two meals a day, but then the leftover from that, 25% of people only have one meal a day. And that's just talking about food. They can't afford school. They can't afford health care. They can't afford anything. So it remains my lifelong goal to bring more income to this district. As we, we wind things down, I, mean, I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have a trip to get ready for um, what, what is next for you? I mean, where are you now? Cause I know you've talked about, you've, you, you went back to your job with the inspector general. What are you doing day to day now? And what is your, what's the long-term goal for what comes next? Well, I actually left the job twice. So okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm with a new, uh, firm making more money, which I'm happy about doing the same work. Um, but I still have this burning desire to help Uganda. So I'm going to keep pursuing that. I'm going to keep rooting for the Gators. I'm going to help the softball team as much as I'm needed, which is not much at all. (laughs) Um, And otherwise, just staying the same. I haven't changed much, just grown. Um, I know Gator Nation is going to be proud to hear about what you're doing if they didn't already know. And I know that they will also wish you a lot of luck as you continue pursuing that passion of, of making real sustainable change uh, and your your stubborn doggedness to get it done no matter what. Uh, it's very consistent with what you did as a player. And obviously that 
that uh, translates to other parts of your life as well. So congratulations on all you've done and good luck on continuing to make that difference that, uh, that is so important to you. Thank you, Adam. And it's nice to see you still rocking after so many years and not to count our days, but it's been a lot of years. And thank you for continuing to highlight Florida softball. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.